Welcome to the world of culture pop with Steve Mason and Sue Kalinsky. Culture, comedy, movies, TV, tech, authors, trends, pop, pop. This is the Culture Pop Podcast. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason, along with the beautiful Sue Kalinsky. Sue, good morning. How you feeling? How you doing? Um. Wow. Well. I'm feeling pretty beautiful, I guess. Well, you're so low-key. Like, I'm like, energy, and you're like, oh, I'm low-key. I've got total morning voice. I know, I sound like a <laughs> Brenda Vaccaro. Yeah. yeah. Some of these we do on Saturdays at a normal time, and then the others we do uh, in the middle of the week uh, when both of us are uh, working. You've got big stuff going on, huh? Are you allowed to talk about any of the stuff you got going on? Uh, no, I don't want no, to. No, not allowed to talk about any of it? <laughs> no. Top secret? Top secret. All right. Well, we're looking forward to hearing about it when we do. I, I wanted to bring up a little bit later in the show, the funniest movie of the 21st century. In other words, the funniest movie since the year 2000. There's a list out that I completely agree with that I want to bounce off you because okay. uh, I think they are missing some critical, critical funny movies. In the meantime, our guest today is a Tony-winning actress with a long Broadway resume on television. She's appeared on The Detour, Younger, Nashville, Supergirl, and The Good Wife. Her latest movie is here today, starring Billy Crystal and Tiffany Haddish. It's in theaters right now. She's got a new book out called M is for Mama and also Merlot, and she has just released her self-titled debut album. Laura Benani is here. Laura, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks for having me. So I saw you on Broadway in Gypsy, and it was one of the most magical nights I have ever had at the theater. Wichita's one and only Burlesque Theater presents Mama! Miss Gypsy Rose Lee. What was it like on that show? I mean, you're working with Patti Lapone. What was that show like for you? It was transformative, really. You know, it was such an incredible experience to work with Patti Lapone and Boyd Gaines. And we also had Arthur Lawrence directing us, who wrote Gypsy and who wrote West Side Story. Um, you know, he was 92 years old directing the show. And he had, you know, seen every iteration up until then. So he knew it worked. He knew it didn't work. Um, so he created kind of this like foolproof production. Um, but also gave us room within it to really find our own way. Um, it was, I think for me, like everything leading up to that in terms of my work, I had not felt as confident in my acting as I did in my singing. And that show shifted that for me and working with Arthur and Patty shifted that for me. And I feel like it's when people started taking me seriously more as an actor. And after that, I started doing a lot of straight plays and more television and film and stuff. So it was really um, kind of life altering for me. 
So did you, because I remember growing up seeing the movie Gypsy with Natalie yeah. Wood and Rosalind Russell. Yeah. Uh, now, had, had you seen that prior to doing the play, doing the when musical? I was, yeah, when I was younger, I did. Um, but I, I purposely didn't um, watch it. Like, um, again, I didn't rewatch it. Because when you're doing a revival, it's so easy to sort of rely on what other people have done before. And that's not as interesting to me as like really feeling like you're creating a character from scratch. Um, so I had seen it, but, but not in many, many years. And then Patty Lapone, I mean, what can you say? She, when she gets to Rose's turn in that show, I'm like, are you kidding me? I was in the third row and dead center. And she was playing, I felt like she was playing that to me. It was unbelievable. That's how everyone in the audience feels. That's the magic of Patty Lapone. Is she is there is no one like her. She is a true force of nature. She's and she's also like one of the kindest, most loving people. She's one of my closest friends. She's more than a friend. She's like my family. She's so loyal. And you know, sometimes I get frustrated because I feel like people will um say like, oh, she has a reputation or, you know, oh, she's you know, difficult. And she's not. She just expects a lot of herself and others, you know? And I think if she were a man, and frankly, if she had started or if she had started at a different time, she wouldn't, that wouldn't um, be said of her. You know, she really paved the way for so many women to be able to have agency in their own lives and careers. We have her to thank for that. Yeah, I remember um, when she did Evita, and then when the movie came out, it was given to Madonna. Oof. And I thought to myself, like, how how could Oof. they do that? I mean, it just seemed like so insulting to Patti yeah. LuPone to not give it to her. Mm-hmm. You know, and I know that when it comes to movies, oh, you know, they were going for, you know, the, the candy on the side. You know, they were going mm-hmm. for someone who they thought was going to, you know, bring in this big audience. But mm-hmm. God, what a what a knife in the heart. That happens to us so often, you know, where musical theater performers or Broadway performers are known for a role and then they don't get to play it in the film because they're not quote unquote famous enough. And then you end up with this sort of like homogenized version of a character. Um, And it's a bummer. Yeah. You know, I started out as, as an actor and I've always wondered on Broadway what it must be like to like hold a stage, like mm. to be on stage and to feel that audience and that sort of crackle. What, what does that feel like? It feels um, utterly human. It's a very human experience. Um, in that we are all there for the same purpose. Everyone backstage, everyone on stage, everyone in the audience. We, are, we have all made a choice to be in that building on this particular night and tell this story and experience the story. So there's something that feels almost ancient about that in the hmm. way that we've always sort of passed down our tales from generation to generation. So it feels like you're sort of part of something um, that began long ago. That, I love that. I actually love the ephemeral nature of it, that everybody leaving knows that they saw something that is now gone. Hmm. It only lives in memory. Um, you know, probably on YouTube somewhere. Yeah, but, right. <laughs> <laughs> but 
So to me, there's just the magic to it. And then learning to how to gauge an audience, to read an audience. And when you're in a long run, to sort of learn the patterns of an audience, that a Tuesday night audience is different than a Thursday night audience and why. Um, you feel a bit like a, like a detective or a sociologist. Um, I really love it. Yeah, you know, I, I did stand-up for a very, very long time. And, you, you know, you talk about the nights, like Saturday, like Friday early show, never good. You know, you yeah. would think, oh, it's a weekend, but people are right. coming from work, so they're, they're still tired. tired. Um, Saturday late show, a lot of times, bad news. You know, people have <laughs> yeah. been out all night, drunk, not really paying attention. Um, but what I wanted to ask you, um, what's the longest run you've ever done? And has there ever been a time where you thought, if I have to say this, say or sing this one more time, I'm going to kill somebody? Um, I think my longest run was my first show I ever did. I, I did The Sound of Music on Broadway when I was 18. And I was an understudy for a year. And then I played the role for 10 months. So. Um, maybe not 10 months, maybe like seven months or something like that. But, um, so that was the longest run I've ever been in, but no, I'm one of those weirdos that I like the consistency of it because I find something new. Um, I, I like, it's so rare as actors and performers that we have any sense of like control. So to know where you're going to be, what your paycheck is going to be, you know, like what your day looks like, all of that to me feels so satisfying as a human. And then to get to go to work and especially if you're playing a character that you love to getting to like be them. It's like visiting a friend, you know, that's how I think of it. And there are certainly times I've been tired or if I'm sick or in pain, that's always hard. But very rarely have I ever felt like I can't say this again, but that's because I've also been really blessed to be in some really great shows. Uh, you have uh, released now your debut self-titled album. It's fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, you've said that it fulfills your desire for musical outreach. What does that album do for you? You know, I, it took me so long to release an album because I have such a diverse taste in music and in artists. So I was like, how am I going to create something that I love that also feels cohesive? and doesn't feel like it's all over the place. And so, you know, the thing that I love about what Matt Pearson, my producer, and Gil Goldstein, the arranger, did is they took essentially a hundred years worth of music and arranged it in such a way that it feels like it could all have been written by the same person. Hmm. But it's from very, like, very different artists. So you have, you know, Selena Gomez and Stephen Sondheim and Burt Bacharach and Rufus Wainwright and the Jonas Brothers, you know, it's like, it's really, and, and honestly, like if you ha had an alien come down, I don't know if they could tell you who was who. Mm -hmm. And I really love that because I feel like we put it into like my particular voice. And I don't mean that literally, but, but in, in the way that music can feel um, like it's telling a story. Like I know we only buy singles now. Very rarely do people buy albums. I do. Cause I like to listen to the whole story of it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I feel like we're telling a really cohesive story, um, with this album and I'm really proud of it. And I'm honored to have worked with those musicians. They're so amazing. Um, so yeah. 
it, if you were ever to do a duet with somebody, who would who would you who would be your dream duet? Oh my gosh, my dream duet. I mean, I love Tori Amos so much. Hmm. I I feel like she got me through some really hard times in my life. Um, I feel like I have so much like Tori Amos and Julie Andrews. You can see why my album is sort of what it is. Um, yeah. How did you pick the songs? I, I, in in partnership with Matt Pearson, the producer, um, he chose, frankly, the pop song. Because that's not a world I really travel very much. And then I picked, like, The Party's Over um, and Wives and Lovers. And some of the more old school stuff. I'm kind of an old school gal. Um, so those were the ones that I felt like I really wanted to get on there. What are you doing the rest of your life? Um, and I love this. It's Wainwright. So cigarettes and chocolate milk. And then he, you know, the Selena Gomez, um, she was like, I think we should try this. This lyric is actually really sophisticated. Not, not actually, that's disparaging. Like, but this lyric is really sophisticated. Go into it blindly. I needed to lose you to find me. This dancing was killing me softly. I needed to hate you to love me. To love, to love, to love. I needed to lose you. So you grew up with parents who were in um, in show business. Your mom was an, was an actress, right? And your your dad was a Broadway um, singer and, and actor. Did you spend time as a kid um, going going with them? Were you like backstage? I mean, was this like obviously in your blood since you were a little little kid? Yeah, I mean, my parents divorced when I was like not even two years old, and my mom remarried my dad Sal, who's a psychotherapist. So I grew up in New Jersey having like a very sort of like normal life. But I would on occasion go into the city to visit my dad, Marty, and see him in shows. Um, and I would certainly hear, you know, the tales of when my mom was performing. Um, so it was definitely in my blood. I was very aware of the sacrifice that my mother made in order to like raise myself and my sister in a way that felt meaningful to her. Um and now she and I, actually 35 years after she left the business, she and I um, do shows together all over the country. Wow. Uh, yeah. And she's amazing. We have one this coming Sunday at 3 p.m. Um, with Seth Redesky online. Nice. Oh, nice. Cool. Yeah. You know, the thing that always blows me away about New York, and Sue and I both lived in New York. Sue grew up there, and she and I did a, a radio show in New York uh, back in uh, the late 90s. Um, and I used to go to the duplex. Um, yeah in the West village on like Friday nights and at 11 o'clock they would have this Sondheim show and people saying every day it, it, it was strictly Sondheim, but you could sing whatever you wanted. I'm blown away by the amount of talent, the amount of musical talent in New York that, that exists um, and what it must take to, to break through. Yeah. I mean, I think, it's, it's interesting because there's a tremendous amount of talent, 
but in a way it's a niche art form. So it's like, there's almost more demand to be in it than see it <laughs> in some ways, you know, I often will say, sometimes I'll come home. We live in New Jersey now, but when we were in the city, I would come home and say to my husband, like, I just heard the most incredible performer on the subway. Huh. And I, I don't know why I'm on Broadway and that person is on the subway. It is just a twist of fate. It has nothing to do with talent and everything to do with like the trajectory of your life and being in the right place at the right time or just the path that was chosen for you. But there is so much talent, so much incredible talent and less opportunity. You know, I think, look, I mean, Broadway is a, is a billion dollar industry for it's like $87 billion dollars a year it brings into New York city. So certainly people want to see it, but I don't, I wouldn't be able to tell you how many shows are running at any given time on Broadway, but it's certainly not enough to have to encompass the amount of talent in New York city or in the country for that matter. I know you would think agents and managers would be trolling, you know, the subways and, you know, you know, you know, Washington Square Park and you know, all the areas yeah. where, where people are performing, you know, outside. Because, you know, there was a comedian many, many years ago. His name was Charlie Barnett, and he was a um, street comic and he used to perform at Washington Square Park. And then he ended up going to um, Catch a Rising Star and 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 all the comedy clubs in New York. And he actually, just from being seen on the street, got Saturday Night Live. Hmm. And then he couldn't do it because he was illiterate and he couldn't uh, read cue cards. No. So, it, so that's, that's how Eddie Murphy got the, got the gig. Oh, my God. But he was a that's brilliant, brilliant comic. Yeah. There was a guy um, who was like a, um, a, a street poet named Brother Blue, who used to perform when I was a little girl. And he and my dad, Sal, the psychotherapist, became really good friends. And he ended up being a professor at Harvard. And he would write this poetry and perform it. And he was just incredible. So you got to do uh, My Fair Lady, which is, yeah. I think, one of the great uh, American musicals ever written. Um, and it mm -hmm. also happens to be my, uh, I played Henry Higgins, which was a dream role for me. Uh, when, when I was <laughs> that, a, that I wish we had tape. <laughs> <laughs> when, I, when I was at Bowling Green State University, uh, I played oh Henry gosh. Higgins and, uh, and I loved it. And I still, I still do some of those songs when I'm like walking around the house and doing stuff. Uh, you know, I've grown accustomed to her face and oh, those shows. What a, what a magical show that is, huh? It's unbelievable. It was always my dream role, too. And, you know, I turned 40 playing that part. So I had really made peace with the fact that I was never going to play it. Um, I had just had my daughter when they were doing the revival. And I was like, there is no way that I can be the mom I want to be and the Eliza I want to be. And I ended up doing a play with Amy Schumer and Keegan-Michael Key instead that, that Steve Martin had written. And so I was like, okay, this is just not going to ever happen for me. I'm never going to play this part, but I've played so many other ones and I'm just going to be grateful. And then Lauren Ambrose, who played the role, left to do a TV show and they called me and they said, do you want to do it? And I was like, yes, I do. And at that point, my daughter was two hmm. and could raise herself. No, I'm kidding. Um, she, you know, I just, I felt comfortable enough and like I wasn't constantly exhausted. Um, 
And it was just a dream. It was such a dream to do it with Rosemary Harris. Yeah. I mean, my goodness. She was 92 years old. Wow. Wow. And, and she's, I, mean, I mean, she's still with us. I shouldn't say it like she was, but at the time she was 92 years old. Yeah. You know, I, they always gave me the, uh, the musicals where you did the sing talking. You yeah, know, totally. Which, <laughs> cause totally. I can't really carry it to, but I can do the intonations and the inflections yeah. that make it sound like a song. So I, that basically boils down to what Camelot and my fair lady. Those are kind of the two <laughs> that you can, for a guy that you can sing, talk your way yeah. through. Like Dr. Doolittle. I feel like that one, <laughs> you can talk your way through. That's kind of it. Yeah. 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 Um, so tell me about, uh, tell me about your book. Uh, your book is called, uh, well, I mean, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Yeah. Do all, I, I'm not a parent. Do all moms drink a lot of wine? Your, your uh, suggestion in your title, Emma's for Mommy and also Merlot, uh, suggests this idea that moms, that's, a, that's something they escape to when they need to. I think that humans drink wine. And, you know, right. And so I, I feel like um, for some, it's more of an escape than others. You know, and I, I think just we did that basically for comedic effects because every sure. children's book is like, hey, it's for Apple, B is for banana. Um, and so we thought it was an eye-catching title. And it, certainly I think there is a feeling with moms where it's like, it's five o'clock. Thank goodness. You know, I'm going to have a glass of wine. We're certainly not recommending anyone right. abu- abuse it. My um, mom would fact, say, my mom would say it's wine o'clock. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, I think. For us, it was just like a humorous, um, a humorous, eye-catching title, not meant to be prescriptive by any means. <laughs> Kid, where, where it, it caught you off guard, you know, with like just being a mom. Move. I was caught off guard from the beginning. And I don't know if it's because I was old. I was 37 when I had my daughter. Um, I feel like there's a reason why so many people are like 22 when they have their kids, you're just tired. You know, at 37, you're, you're just like, what? I've been doing this life one way for 37 years. And now I have to like do this other thing. But I, I mean, to be transparent, I had really um, challenging postpartum depression and anxiety. Mm. And my daughter was really colicky and never slept. And so I don't think I anticipated any of that. Nobody yeah. really talks about that. Nobody tells you um, this is a possibility. What they tell you is you will never feel a love like this. You will put that baby in your arms and everything will come into focus. And for me, I was like, I just labored 62 hours with this stranger who now I keep alive. You know, so I think for me, the whole thing threw me for a loop. I just like felt like I don't know how to do this. Um, and I still kind of feel like that. I know how much I love my daughter. I would do anything for her. She is my absolute priority, but every day I'm just flying by the seat of my pants. I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm trying. Yeah. Like I, I don't, I don't have kids. I have nieces and I always said it's the best of both worlds because they look like me and then I can leave. Um, exactly. 
But I remember, um, you know, I have a, a, a bunch of girlfriends that have children and, you know, they would say to me, oh, you know, I'd be on the phone with them and they would be like, oh, you know, you really have to have kids. It's like the greatest thing. And it's like so wonderful. And then like a second later, I hear, shut up, you know, <laughs> yelling at <laughs> their kids. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I, I feel like it's so funny. People are so um, like shocked when people and in particular women choose not to have children. Um, and I just, I don't understand that. I, I don't, it's, it's as if that is our calling in this life. It's like, we're put on this earth to procreate. And I just don't think that's true. It, it is, it is such a particular skill set, um, and requires infinite patience, which is something I have always struggled with. Um, so, you know, I'm, I, she is for sure my teacher not the other way around. Yeah. Well, you know, infinite uh, patience is not something that I necessarily have got. I always thought I would be very bad at being a a dad. I mean, I I would have been just a a mess. I I probably am a little bit too much uh, uh, self-centered. And everybody says, oh, that'll change. That would change. That would change if I did. But I I just never thought I would be very good at it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I think, that's kind of what I mean about being 37. Like I, I was used to serving myself being at, at the service of me, me and my own needs and to switch that up 37 years into my life was challenging. Yeah. Um, and I think also like we tell moms, we, that we equate motherhood with martyrdom. And if you are not sacrificing everything for your child, and somehow you're doing it wrong. Like, I'll never forget people being like, are you going to go back to work once you have your daughter? And I was like, are you going to ask my husband that? Right. You know, so I, I just feel like, I don't know. I love it, but it's not for everybody. It is for me, you know, yeah, but it's, yeah. it's not for everybody. Right. It just sounds like 1950s thinking, you know. You know? But it kind of hasn't gone away. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, mean, I, I really. No, go ahead. Go ahead. We, we don't, we. It hasn't really gone away. And even if it's gone away in terms of how we talk to each other or talk about it, our institutions don't actually support it. And I think we're seeing how disproportionately mothers have been affected during this pandemic. We're showing that the workplace, it's not, it wasn't created for women. Women infiltrated it ultimately, but it wasn't designed for us. Right, right, right. You know, and hopefully we'll see that we got to, we got to shift some things. Yeah, you know, I was reading um, um, some tweets that you uh, that you wrote, and um, your daughter sounds like a hoot. So oh there was God. this this one thing that I read where you said, "Honey, I'm really sorry. I got frustrated earlier." And she said to you, "It's okay, Mama. You're an actress. You can't help it." Yeah. <laughs> Everything I tweet about her is 100 percent true. <laughs> that is awesome. She is. I always say it's like living with a tiny Robin Williams. <laughs> she's hilarious but sometimes you're just like Shh, just put the coke down and just like relax like she is a character and she's so funny one of the earliest phrases she ever said it was like six in the morning she doesn't sleep which is another like how i imagine robin williams was in the day um and it was like six in the morning she was a little over a year and we were getting ready to go to the coffee shop. And she said, um, mama put makeup on. And I said, oh, no, honey, no, I didn't. And she said, I know. 
Mama put makeup on. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm being trolled by like a 14-month-old baby. Like she, she's just hilarious. Oh, that's she's great. so funny. Yeah. How has becoming a mom changed or enhanced your acting? It has made me so much less self-conscious. And I think because I am constantly tired, I have no room for my own bullshit. Can I say that word? <laughs> yeah, sure. Yep. Okay. Um, I used to think about myself all day long, worry about how I was going to fail, figure out how I was going to say my lines and then get there and just be in my own way. Now I have, I'm usually barely showered, absolutely exhausted <laughs> and so grateful to be with grownups and do something else that I am just like fully present. Also, I think my my skin is more permeable now that like my heart lives outside of my body all the time. You know, I, I feel like I really learned a lot about myself in these past four years that I've been Ella's mom and man, my emotions that maybe were difficult to get to before are not now. You know, we've talked to a lot of uh, Broadway actors on the, the podcast here mm-hmm. and it's just, it's, it must be such a hole in New York that there is no Broadway right now. It's a hole because there's no Broadway, but also because there was no bailout for us mm. at all. You know, I have friends who had to sell their apartments and move in with their parents. You mm. don't work on Broadway to become rich and famous. You do it because you love it. And for the most part, it's a paycheck to paycheck profession. You know, that like 10 airlines got full bailouts. And (coughs) so sorry. That's okay. (coughs) There's so much pollen here. That's why we have post-production. Don't worry. Sorry. That's okay. But, you know, the 10 airlines got full bailouts. And I have friends who are like living at home Hmm. in Illinois It's heartbreaking to me. Yeah. And yeah. What are they telling you about? Cause I I saw the date it's like mid September, potentially Broadway. What have they, what have they told you since you're on Broadway? Do you have any inside information? Are you, are you planning a show? Are they mounting shows? How's that all that working? I have no inside information other than to say that much like the rest of our country and other um, spaces, we are also having like a reckoning when it comes to social justice, BIPOC and, you know, trans people and disabled people and deaf people are saying like, we can't come back until it's a safe space for us to come back to. And demanding that our union be a part of that, that our union actually protect everyone. So those are the conversations that are being had within our community. And I'm grateful that we're having it and I'm grateful to be a part of it. But in terms of what is coming back and when, I don't really have any information. Did you see that they canceled the Golden Globes for 2022? I think that's great. I'm really... 
I think it's incredible that NBC took that stance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Um, yeah. Be- because that uh, lack of diversity, plus, you know what, the Golden Globes have always been such a sham. I mean, anybody, anybody yeah. that's been through that dog and pony show, and I think, by the way, it literally is a dog and pony show. Anybody mm-hmm. that's been through it knows that it's that there's some, some scam activity going on. I, I actually, in addition to the lack of diversity, I always think there's there's kind of that weird sort of kissing up to the guy from, I don't know, Luxembourg or, you know, whatever, whatever that happens to be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you always hear like that, that studios or whatever, like buying Golden Globe for people. And, you know, I think that's the danger of sort of any award situation, but that one certainly more than others. <laughs> Although you won the Tony, what, uh, what was that night like? Oh, that was amazing. You know, I, I never, I didn't come into this world thinking I want to be a famous person, but I did think I want to be a working actor and I want to work on Broadway. And for me, the highest point you get to is the Tony Award, you know? So to be in that room with my community and my family and to have Arthur Lawrence at 92 standing for me was just, you know, a moment I will never forget and I will always cherish. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, listen, we, we appreciate your time an awful lot. We look forward, by the way, to when Broadway comes back. I intend to Me make too. that uh, trip from LA to, uh, to New York to check out my, I don't know, sometimes I'll do five shows when I'm there. I, I go oh, crazy, go crazy. Um, the, uh, the book is called M is for Mama and also Merlot and your self-titled debut album is out right now. Laura, thanks so much for doing this. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. This has been such a great conversation. Ah, she was great. I love Broadway. I love Broadway. I, I know. That's one of the things I miss so much about New York uh, when we lived there was I used to go see everything. Well, I've learned so much about your um, stage career. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea. Well, hey, little wow. known fact, I was accepted to Yale Drama School. Did you realize that? Uh, no, I did not. Yes, I did. I was definitely going to be an actor. Wow. Yeah. What What was your audition? Oh, God. I want to say it was Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. <laughs> brick? Yeah, Brick in Cat mm-hmm. on a Hot Tin Roof. Yeah. Oh, my God. I still have a little, by the way, uh, My Fair Lady. You still have? I, I still have a little. I can still do a little. Oh, oh okay. Damn, you- damn, damn, damn. I've grown accustomed to a face. She almost makes the day begin. I've grown accustomed to the tune. She whistles night to noon. Her smiles, her frowns, her ups, her downs are second nature to me now. Like breathing out and breathing in. I love your subtle accent. <laughs> Very you got subtle. that little Re- Rex Harrison accent. Yeah, that's exactly. He's, he was the benchmark, right? Oh, of course. Rex Harrison was the guy. He was the ultimate sing talker. <laughs> I was always a good sing talker, not a good singer, good sing talker, sing talker, close talker. So oh, that, I was with the Einfeld guy. <laughs> yeah, sing exactly. Talker. <laughs> so I found this list, Sue. Uh, mm-hmm. This is from IndieWire, which is a really good site, good for movie news, especially independent film. Uh, and they released a list of the funniest movies of the 21st century, according to them. So mm-hmm. this is from 2000 on. Okay. And I just run through the list. I would argue that some of these are not comedies. 
Okay. Like Sideways is number one. Now, I love Sideways. It's a great movie about a guy in his midlife crisis, and I am not drinking Merlot. Uh, Paul Giamatti was so great in that, but not a comedy. School of Rock, a comedy, not just not one that I love. Yeah, I wouldn't put it in the top 10. Lost in Translation, number three, it's such a melancholy movie. It's not like a laugh riot. Mm-hmm. Uh, Grand Budapest Hotel, which is great, but again, didn't didn't rock my world. Team America, World Police. Do you ever see that movie? No. Now that's some funny shit. Was that's it? Some real, oh my god, that's so damn funny. Yeah. Now, who was in that? It was puppets. It was all puppets. Oh. It was okay. bu- done by uh, the South Park guys. So friggin' funny. At oh, one okay. point, two puppets actually have sex. <laughs> um, it's it's awesome. Uh, Super bad is great. Forty year old virgin actually is, I think, one of the funniest it, it, movies yeah, definitely uh, great of movie. the last twenty years. Uh, Enough said, which was a Julie Louis Dreyfus and James Gandolfini movie. I again, great movie. I uh, didn't think it was funny. Burn After Reading is actually really funny. That's mm-hmm. a Coen Brothers movie with mm-hmm. Brad Pitt and Francis McDormand. And then Midnight in Paris, which again. That, and that's not yeah. like laugh down funny. Yeah. I mean, I know it's Woody Allen, but yeah. you know, it really wasn't his funny, one of his funnier movies. No, not at all. So what is for you the best funniest movie since the year 2000? Uh, well, Best in Show. Best in Show a, is so good. was hysterical. Um, best line I, from uh, Best in Show was, I have two left feet. No, I really have two left feet, <laughs> Eugene Levy. Uh, and then Jennifer Coolidge with the uh, super old guy. We have so much in common. We both love soup. <laughs> Just classic, <laughs> classic stuff. So, yeah, Best in Show is definitely right there. Um, you know, more recently, Eurovision Song Contest was hysterical. It was great. Yeah, that was uh, – we had uh, – uh, Andrew Steele, who co-produced that with Will Ferrell on the show, and that was a really funny movie. Oh, Borat, subsequent movie film. I mean, well, anything. What anything about that Borat he does. the first? The first, yeah. I mean, anything that he's ever done. Yeah. How about Meet the Parents? I'm watching you, Greg. I'm watching yeah, you. Know, I I didn't I didn't watch a lot of Meet the Parents stuff. You know. Did I mean, you? Some, yeah, I just the didn't. Fir- just the first one. Just the first one. Okay. Best okay. line from that movie: I've got nipples, Greg. Can you milk me? <laughs> uh what about elf elf was great Hysterical. i love that movie classic um, classic movie anchorman anchorman is the winner ding 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 now I, does everybody love anchorman or do just people in my business love anchorman um I, you know i know ne- i don't know like I've never media, done, i've never media done a people. survey but New, huh? news people and uh and radio people we all love anchorman we quote from it all the time um, but do regular people like Anchorman? Civilians? I would think so. I mean, it was just, you know, I mean, and everybody in it was so funny. So funny. Yeah, so funny. And um, then there was a movie that I was telling you about before we did the show, um, The Wrong Missy, which was with Laura Lappin and um, David Spade. It's a uh, it's an Adam Sandler movie, so I know a lot of people like, oh, you know, his movies are so ridiculous. It's really silly. Yep. But it's so funny. And she is amazing. She's a brilliant comic actress. Is she? Oh, God. Yeah, I'd never even heard of that movie, Sue. When did yeah. that come out? When did that come out? It, it just came out on, I think it, it was a Netflix movie. It was never in the theaters. It came um, out maybe three years ago, two years yeah, ago. Yeah, Anchorman would be my number one. Uh, but right to, oh, by the way, 
Zoolander. Did oh, you Zoolander. like Zoolander? Yeah, Zoolander was a star. Blue Steel. Blue Steel. <laughs> and uh, did you ever see What We Do in the Shadows? Yes. Oh, yes, now that's that some great. genius level stuff. Yeah. Oh, also Booksmart. Booksmart is very funny. Really, really funny. Yeah, really funny. Okay, I got one hypothetical for you. You know, I've got the book of questions and I like to dust off one of these. So while parking late at night, you slightly scrape the side of a Porsche. You are certain no one else is aware of what happened. Nobody's ever going to see this. The damage is minor, probably covered by insurance. Would you leave a note? Absolutely. You would? Yes. 100%. 100%. Wow. That's very ethical. Yeah, because Would you have I, to think about it? No, not wouldn't even think wow. twice about it. Because um just recently I noticed that somebody put a slight dent in the side of my car. Mm. And you know it happened in a parking lot. Sure. You know, and it's like you motherfucker. <laughs> it's like <laughs> and and you know, you know, one time I would parked in a supermarket park parking lot and there was a car that was um, parked very close to me. Okay. I actually, and it was a different car. I have a white car. So yeah. th- that color, it was a darker color. So if they open the door, there, there's a chance that maybe some of the paint would have maybe gotten on my car. Yeah, yeah. I took a picture of their license plate before wow. I went into the store. And so what, what came of it? Nothing came of it, but I, Wait a minute, I you took, you took a license plate number, of the car park next uh, prophylactically uh, with the possibility that they were going to hit your car. That if they did, I could, you know, you had them red handed. I had them red handed. <laughs> you know, w- w- one time I, I, um, I was with a group of friends and I was going through kind of like a really crappy time in my life. And, um, we were going out to lunch and it was a very windy day. And I opened up my car and the door just flew and it hit the car next to the park car next to me. And um, the woman who owned the car came by just as it happened. Mm. And there was a little bit of a dent or whatever, a little scratch. And um, I just just started crying because I was so emotional. And my girlfriends were basically, you know, they were like my agents, you know, my my mood agents. And they were like, oh, God, she's really going through a hard time. (laughs) And the woman said, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Oh, and she she just said, "Don't." Oh, worry. that's very nice. Yeah, I this happened. Now, would to me you? Recently. Would you? Would you put a note? Well, this happened to me recently. So I was in the uh, small parking lot by my acupuncturist, and uh, so I backed up into this uh, truck, and it, it dinged it a little tiny bit, but it was an old beater truck, right? Mm-hmm. So it's an old beater truck. It's dented all over the place, paints chipping, all this stuff, but still. I felt like, all right, but the right thing to do is leave a note, leave a note. Uh, guy calls me the next day and says, are you the guy that hit my car? I said, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm the one. He goes, well, what are you willing to uh, pay me? And I said, well, what are you looking for? He said, no, you make an offer. So I said, uh, 300 bucks. And he said, done, 300 bucks. And I had to drop off $300 cash to this guy. Now that's just outright scammery. Yeah. Yeah. But I, but I, he probably parks that clunker everywhere, everywhere. (laughs) And it gets hit all the time. It's a gigantic truck and maybe he's just getting 300 there and and 150 here. And, but uh, yeah, but I always leave the note. I always leave the note. 
If yeah, I had, not I, that it happens all the time, but it, when it has happened, I've always left the note. It, to me, it is, it's just such a cardinal sin to walk away from something like that. It would just stick with me, right? I would just oh, totally. like, I, I would be like, it would be in my conscious, uh, conscious uh, conscience and uh, it would stick with me. It would stick with me. It bothered okay. me. Okay, so I'll tell you something. Years and years ago when I was waitressing, um, I was it was kind of a fancy schmancy restaurant. And um, I was walking with a bottle of ketchup okay. and the top wasn't on clean cleanly. Right. And I was shaking the bottle as I was approaching the table and the top flew off and ketchup went all over the back of this woman's white mink coat. Oh, Wow. And I didn't say a wow, thing. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You didn't say anything? <laughs> I didn't say a thing. <laughs> wow. And uh and, and you then, never got you never got fingered for that one, huh? Nope. But intermittently, as I walked by, because her back was to me and it was on the back of her chair, yeah. I had like a rag and I would just kind of like swipe it like every now and then as I walked by the table. Yeah. I would secretly swipe it. Swipe it, it a to little get, bit. To get some of the ketchup. Oh God. Well that's... I thought, I'm gonna have to pay for this mink coat. I was a waitress. I was making like no money. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I figured, look, you know, I didn't you know, that's that's different when you ruin someone's car. You know, I figured you got a mink coat, you're okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you know who makes this show possible all the time, Sue? Yes, our good pal, Jacob. Yes, and you hear me talk about Jacob all the time. He's a sponsor of the Los Angeles Lakers, and he has partnered with the Lakers because they both know what it takes to have a successful team. In basketball, the GM and ownership construct the team, the coaching staff works with the players, and the players uh, perform on the court. Think of Jacob as the owner, the GM, and a player coach. Jacob, the owner and GM, has built a large and powerful team that has got the knowledge and experience to help you win your case. Jacob, the coach, has got meetings with his team and analyzes the best path to success for your particular case. And Jacob, the player, will do whatever it takes to help you win your case, even jumping on a call, meeting face-to-face with the insurance company, or deliberating in a courtroom. Jacob's a real person, real attorney. That's why he's my attorney. And if you're ever injured in an accident, he should be your attorney to call uh, for a free consultation. 844-24-JACOB. That's 844-24-JACOB. 844-24-JACOB, or remember the catchy jingle, accident or injury. Call Jacob and Ronnie. Call, Call Jacob. Jacob. All right, I'll take right. it. Okay. Yeah, I was going to do it as Rex Harrison there. Oh, I wish you would have. <laughs> Call Jacob. <laughs> no, nah, that's, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. Damn, oh. damn. <laughs> damn, damn, called Jacob. Yes. Um, All right, Sue, fun as always. Thank you very much. Don't forget, wherever you are, hit the subscribe button. We appreciate that a lot. And uh, rate us and review us also makes a big difference. And we will see you next time on the Culture Pop Podcast.